0: Hello, I'm Stephanie Lua. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I ching with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the Surface Time today, I spoke with Hester Ross. She was the person who got me off my procrastinating mode and started to produce Surface Time. However, to get her to hear... It did take some gentle threat like normal supplies of my kombucha chili sauce and strong persuasion like I will up the supply of kombucha chili sauce When we did the recording, she has been on the mummy's break for scuba diving for some time I'm sure that all moms who happen to be scuba divers can relate Okay, let's say some words so to show
1: that it's actually working testing. Hi, Steph. Hi, Hester. How are you? Good. I'm very happy to be here.
2: Thanks for joining me.
1: So, we're here to talk about diving? Yes. And I'm going to start with my classic opening question. Go ahead. Where was your last memorable dive? My last memorable dive? Actually, there were so many memorable dives. So but I'll tell you my, yeah, my favorite, obviously was in Palau with my husband, Ian. And we were like doing this morning manta ray dive. And I think that was the most memorable one because I've never seen a manta that close before. And then just swimming above you and creating these big shadows. It's classic underwater movie where you have the shadow of the manta going above you and you're like looking up and watching it swim above and off into the distance. That's the most memorable one. How close were you? It was pretty close. We were kneeling on the survey bottom. The water wasn't too deep, I remember, and it was their feeding time. So that's why they were out. So it was pretty close and it was amazing, like close enough to cast that shadow over you. It's actually,
2: I think it was one of the very few occasions where I was used the word awesome.
1: It is awesome because in your head that these things can get really big. <laughs> but when you're diving in general, when the open water, they don't look that big to you in the distance. <laughs> so this was the first time I could actually experience the breath of these animals. And it was, like you said, it's quite awesome. And they're majestic when you're looking at them. Very.
2: <laughs> and I find this is a, a profound... Sensation encountering those giants. They are giants in a way. Yes,
1: they are very, yeah, the wingspan, those things can be. We'll yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's quite impressive. There were so many dives that were memorable when we went on that trip to Palau. Mm-hmm. But that was the first time I've actually been that close to a sea creature. That I mean, there was still more on my bucket list that I really want to see. I've not seen it, which are just as amazing. Like a whale shark. Every time I've gone diving with my husband, Ian with Ian and shark was spotted. It just so happens to be that one dive I didn't go on <laughs> or the mola mola. Another animal that I keep missing. I see one mola mola on your year. Yes. My mola mola, my daughter Kate drew for me. <laughs> You got the other one. It's, it's, it's a, a film head shark. Okay. Yeah. So Ian and I are obviously, Ian is obviously a very vid scuba diver. You've known Ian so many years, right? Yeah. He's done it all the way up to the dive monster. And I've always been very interested in underwater biology animals, nature, environment, and all that. And so with our daughter, Kate, She's grown up from birth, being <laughs> brainwashed almost into, like, underwater, it's amazing, look at all these sea creatures. Mm-hmm. And she probably knew about monomonas and hammerhead sharks before the typical farm animals. <laughs> we skipped all the cow and sheep and, and things and are like, this is a monomola, this is a hammerhead shark, this is an octopus. And we also did like the deep sea creatures as well. Again. So she grew up with knowing all these underwater creatures. And I wanted two of her to make me some earrings. And so I asked her to draw her favorite underwater creatures and she drew Hammerhead Shark and Lana Mara for me. And Hammerhead Shark is one of the first animals that she actually drew and she always loved drawing hammerhead sharks for Ian. Oh my god, It's the oddest-looking
2: shark underwater?
1: It is, but she knows a lot about hammerhead sharks because she's seen pictures of it in her home. Because Ian and I went to Galapagos while for a moon and there's hammerhead sharks everywhere in Galapagos, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. mola mola is just a really cool creature and I think she just likes to say the word mola mola a lot. And because we always make it the point to show her and introduce her to the cool creatures that not many kids or even adults know about. Really? But she's not a scuba diver yet. Not mm-hmm. yet. Not yet. She. You can't scuba dive until you're, what, 10, right? Yeah. Yeah, 10 years old. We tell her the moment you turn 10, you're going on a diving trip with mommy and daddy. But Until then, you need to learn how to snorkel. <laughs> <laughs> So we started her on the snorkeling. We do snorkeling. We practice our kicks with the fins and practice breathing out of the snorkel tube in the swimming pool. But we have yet to take her on a proper snorkeling trip. But that's all now this. That's all now that's on list to do. Hopefully next year. You're a teacher or educator. Yes. I see the connection. And one
2: thing that both you and Ian have on her was you actually instilled the idea of connection with the ocean since. Yeah. And I think it's also... A lot of credit to the fact that both of you are scuba divers and therefore your love for the ocean water and become part of your nurture program for home. And I think, take a step back, majority of people don't get that. So there's a disconnection between whatever's going on in the ocean and the land. And then um, we could be passionately talking about hammerhead. Yeah, which is sharp. And the majority of people are still very much traumatized by (laughs) Joel.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a great tragedy in the cinematic history, (laughs) Charles. What would you say or do differently to
2: help people to change or shift their perspective from this fear-based perceptions of what the ocean is and into moving? to look at the ocean as being a a lovely, wonderful place to be in.
1: That just all comes down to education. Already now, there's so many of these programs going on. The Ocean Park in Hong Kong, the aquarium here in Singapore, they have these education programs that are trying to introduce these what are traditionally known as fearsome animals in the ocean and telling the public that these animals are an integral part of the ecosystem, without these apex predators, the whole ocean system, the cycle of the ocean, it would collapse. You can't live without the apex predators. And every creature in the ocean has a role within that system. And I remember learning about this when I was in my undergraduate degree in biology, because my degree is in ecology and the first time that I was looking at these ecosystems and learning about these ecosystems and the place that every creature has within the wider part of the habitat. It was just it's amazing the relationships. And I think it's just through education that you have to tell these people, you have to like take back that brainwashing and show them how every creature that exists, has a role from like the fungus in the soil. They have a purpose, the mold that you see, they have a purpose. Ants, even cockroaches, all these creatures, they have a purpose within the wider picture mm-hmm. and it's all education. There's been so many great programs are going on with, uh, in terms of <laughs> getting people to take back the image of these fearsome predators of the shards mm-hmm. Saying no to shark fin soup—that's a huge program that's been going on in Hong Kong for a while now. Mm-hmm. And I see that even nowadays, uh, many wedding banquets, the traditional Chinese wedding banquets, are starting to <laughs> scale back on offering shark fin soup. And even my mom, who I know of her favorite soup, she's always told me is shark fin soup, but even she has stopped to order it. And mm-hmm. she knows, like eat I knew that it worked when I was like, I spent all my childhood years and university years like talking to her about shark fin soup. She went to a Chinese banquet without me and they were serving shark fin soup. Hmm. And then she came home and told me, you'll be glad to know that your dad and I were the only people sitting at that table not to have any. (laughs) We declined the soup and we had to explain to everyone at the table why. And then after we explained, apparently other aunties and uncles decided not to eat the shark fin soup either. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's just that one step at a time, education, imparting that knowledge and Mm. telling people they don't know these things. And you have to show them the wonders of the ocean, the wonders that these animals actually represent. I I think just going back to the aquarium. Yeah. It is
2: controversial. It is controversial. Yes, I know. <laughs> I think the controversy is you have two sides of good and evil at the same time. On one side, if those are wild creatures that should belong to the wild and they are actually being kept in captivity. And on the other side, you do need to have them around to help you yeah. to make that connection for people to connect with what the underwater creature like. And while this amazing experience, which is probably the closest you can get, is by standing inside the dome. Yes. It's 360 degrees of being surrounded with the an sage and all the creatures. And then you, you just get mesmerized and knowing that they're alive. How would you expand this controversy to kids? Because I think from the education perspective, it's not just for kids. But also for the adults, because there's yeah. always black and white, and there's a gray area.
1: It is the biggest debate. There, and funny enough, when back in Hong Kong, this was one of the last debating topics that my kids had to do for the debating competition. <laughs> I think we were arguing for the affirmative that we do need zoos and aquariums, right? And there. there's, there's both sides. There's both sides, and I can see it. And when I take Kate to the aquarium and to the zoo. I do support the aquarium in the zoo for a lot of the work they do in terms of conservation, in terms of the breeding programs. And they do a lot of rescue work as well. And education, you cannot undermine the value of education that these places provide. But on the other hand, yes, you're right. There are some animals that just should not be kept in captivity. (laughs) Right? They are sharks being like no aquariums should ever have a whale shark in the tank. It's impossible. There is no way on Earth you can provide the space that an animal like a wild shark needs. And same with orcas. Mm-hmm. It, it can't. Orcas. I, I know the Vancouver Aquarium has probably stopped several years back, stopped trying to keep orcas in the, mm-hmm. in the aquarium, which is good. So there are some animals that shouldn't be kept there. And one thing about the zoos and aquariums that I've always disliked. Sometimes is the, the petting part. You can handle the creek. And so for those I know, sometimes Kate wants to do it. And I remember telling Kate, no, we are not supposed to pet the animals. I know that other kids are doing it, mm-hmm. but we are not going to do it because first of all, these are wild animals and they really should not be handled by so many people. And secondly, we have to respect the wildlife. So there are two parts of it: how you interact with a child at the zoo at the aquarium, mm-hmm. versus the in general the good things that they do as well. You are both sides; it's very conflicting. Even I am conflicted about it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's everyone going. There's no right and wrong because yes, when you look at from one perspective, you can also see the supporting factor. You also see the cons.
1: It's like. Diving, because I heard your, your podcast with Megs, right? Mm-hmm. And Megs touched on this. Mm-hmm. She talked about the wonders of diving, but at the same time, in the back of her head, she realizes that this is not always natural. <laughs> the behavior of these animals, like the whale sharks, in, what was it, Don Salt right. Yeah. It's not natural, but at the same time, she's glad for it to be in that experience. Mm-hmm. it's conflicting. <laughs> No matter what, there's always a conflict.
2: Conflicts. Which is also very interesting that we, we also see now because of social media, I'm not blaming social media, but I think it's just that overwhelming amount of information out there. And people starting to get so overwhelmed to the point they probably have stopped to do the filtering and let try to see what is reasonable, what is unreasonable. And instead people just see black and white and then sticking to one type of opinion and rejecting the, the other. People forgot that there is a thing called agree to disagree. <laughs> You're laughing.
1: <laughs> yes, because this this either black and white thing reminds me a lot about politics, right? <laughs> In the old days, politicians <laughs> would agree to disagree. They so, wouldn't agree to disagree, but nowadays a all of relationships broken up because there were two camps, but they agree to disagree. Yeah, all the
2: Jews continue to disagree for the sake of disagree. In school, how do you maintain or keep this principle, agree to disagree, alive? As a teacher, what would you do or what have you done?
1: I don't think I've ever come across this problem before. Really? No, because I teach primary school. Oh. they are they too young, too. They're, they're too young to be that polarizing in their opinions, first of all. But secondly, I think for kids, they're generally more accepting, I find, and more open mm. to other people's opinions and ideas and thoughts. When I do de- coaching my debating team, though, they have to take an affirmative or a negative side, but even then, through debating, coaching them through debating, I teach them that there is a spectrum. <laughs> no matter what side you are debating, there is a spectrum of opinions and how you argue it and how you rebut everything. You have to do it in a way that is balanced. You can't just automatically say no, I disagree with you. You can accept someone's idea and tweak the. Opinions and tweak your rebuttals to just might be not so much like instant no or instant agree or disagree. I think
2: debating is a very interesting setup. Having simulated debate, you deliberately hold two distinctively opposing views to play along with it, and knowing this is just role play is actually very useful in building up this central nervous system. Yeah, and how you're. Newer pathway process your thinking and thought what are the key principles that you always get your student to practice by in terms of debating because these are the things that they will need to then take back to realize
1: yeah it is such a useful skills oh this makes me miss my debating team back in Hong Kong I'm a lot <laughs> i've had kids that I've graduated from primary school and are now in secondary school. And just funny enough, just last night, mm-hmm. I got two of my old students to now in secondary school in Hong Kong. They both of them messaged me at the same time last night, mm-hmm. asking me for advice on the debating. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you still love debating so much. But when I teach my kids, you always have to hold a critical view, but yet a very open point of view as well. You have to be both critical and open at the same time. It's like life. There's always more than one side of the story. And there are always shades of, of meaning within the topic. And actually just talking to you about this reminded me of an experience during my uni years. <laughs> I have to tell this story because it's very <laughs> interesting. So I was in, I think second year of uni. I could not even remember what class it is for, but for some reason. In this class, we had to form teams of three and have a debate. And the topic was, should marijuana be legalized? And I remember I was paired up with a good friend of mine and another girl that both of us didn't know. And we could actually choose the side that we wanted for marijuana or against marijuana being legalized. I was like, whatever you guys choose is with me. My friend being very liberal is all for marijuana being legalized. This girl put up a very strong stance, saying, It's my personal belief, I would rather we argue against marijuana because I feel very strongly against marijuana and I can't bring myself to argue for marijuana. So being young back then, I was like, oh I'm gonna go with my friend, whatever he wants, I'll happily do it. So it was true against when we were arguing for marijuana. (laughs) And she made such a big fuss about it. I remember and she was very unhappy about it. But through the course of research and through the course of formulating our arguments and preparing for our debate, she slowly came to realize that there's more to it than just marijuana is a drug, therefore it should not be legal. And that's where my stance is. And I stop right there. And she started to see beyond that to why it should be legalized. And then at the end of the presentation, in the debate that we did, I remember her coming up to me and my friend afterwards and she she apologized to us for being mm. so difficult at first. Mm. And then she said, i changed my personal beliefs now. Yeah. I think it always comes down to education. Yeah, and then the awareness. And the awareness. And to get that awareness is by learning and having that, motivation to learn and without learning, you find your views might change about many things. Okay. said, So we're, ta-
2: we're getting a bit too deep on this one and yeah. get out of this. Something talking about more lighter. So if you
1: were to go dive in again? Yes. Where would be? I know because of motherhood, you're not dive. Because oh. of motherhood, only one parent can dive at a time. And <laughs> these days it is Ian. <laughs> Ian, take <Tainut>. notes. <laughs>
2: Because of that, so you have been deprived, of the ocean water you know, being under yes. <laughs> the water the surface. And um, given the choices, and say Ian decided say, okay, Hester, you can go diving, I'll look up to
1: wait <laughs> right. For
2: a change, where would you go?
1: Where would I want to go? Well, there's just so many places, aren't there? Roger and Pat, that's one thing Ian have always talked about, going on a Liverpool to Roger and Pat. mm mm-hmm. We would love to go back to Galapagos. Mm-hmm. That was in Palau. Okay. I know we have been to these places, but they are that amazing. <laughs> what about humpback? Humpback, we already went swimming with the when I was six months pregnant. Okay. <laughs> that was our baby moon of sorts. <laughs> mm-hmm. The humpbacks, yes, but we're waiting for Kate to be old enough. Mm hmm to remember this experience, but it is on our list to take Kate when she's old enough to go swimming with the humpbacks again. So you swam when you were six months pregnant? Six months pregnant, <laughs> yes. Oh, <no. laughs> when Kate was six months like When Kate was six months in utero, <laughs> yes, we went swimming with the humpbacks because we wanted a really big adventure before Kate came. And we were thinking, what would be a grand adventure that a six-month pregnant woman can go on? <laughs> And I know not many people who are six months pregnant will go swim with the whales, but we found Tony, Mm -hmm. who you also did a podcast with in your first series. Mm -hmm. And we found him and we saw that he did these tours in Tonga with humpbacks. And so we sent him quite a few emails asking him about what it entails, the physicality of it, and whether a six-month pregnant woman can do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) or not. And he seemed to be open to it. Obviously, there are risks. But we were willing to take those risks, and my pregnancy at that point in time had been going very smoothly, no issues at all. And so we're like, like, okay, let's do it. And so they had definite bump going on there. I think there's a picture that Ian took of me with my what's because I was so pregnant at that time. I can't one piece. <laughs> I had to do. Two, I had to do separates because the one piece I couldn't zip it up. <laughs> So I was wearing like the top and bottom. Mm -hmm. So there's a picture Ian took of me where I was just in my bottom Mm -hmm. and I looked like those little hiccups.
2: (laughs) So I'm curious if you can recall the time when you were swimming
1: in that state. It was amazing. It was difficult, but amazing. (laughs) Your buoyancy is all off. The way you float is all off. Okay. Because you basically, you are, you with a pregnant belly, you basically have a flotation device strapped around the middle of you. And so when you're trying to swim, it's almost as if you are swimming on top of a very big. We. Yeah, it's almost like it could be fledging. So it was swimming quite desperate to try to get anywhere. Luckily, there were several encounters that worked in my favor. Like we encountered many, because you go at, in the summertime, because that's when the mothers migrate through Tonga with the babies. Mm-hmm. And so there were many pairs of moms and baby humpbacks around. And that's what we would see. And so for those, the moms would be chilling and the babies are usually quite curious. And so for those encounters, it wasn't that hard. But there was one encounter that I definitely stayed out of. It was when there was a group of males chasing after one female. And so for that one, Tony looked at me and said, you're staying on the boat, okay? (laughs) But that was fine because as Ian was swimming with that big part of humpbacks, I was on the boat and I could see them britching endlessly, basically. And it was an amazing sight. But the most memorable part of that trip was there was hanging upside down in the water, singing, <laughs> and it was just suspended. Yeah. It was so amazing. This whale upside down tail and the hair pointing up, suspended like that for so long. And... I was floating there for the longest time, listening to humpback whale songs underwater. And I remember at that point, the pregnancy became more real to me because I remember thinking, that baby in me must be able to hear this. Yeah. And so that one moment in time, it felt like a shared experience. This is not my one last adventure before the baby came. It was our first adventure together, Uh listening to this song underwater. That's beautiful. It was, yeah. I'm feeling (laughs) tingling. I'm feeling late. It it was really magical and it really was just floating in there and wondering. I'm pretty sure like the sound had stuff travel because the soul was, it really resonates in the water. The sound of itself really resonate. yeah. It has vibrations. If you could feel it. You can hear it. Yes. And the vibrate through the baby Yeah. And... so that was the first time that entire trip where it was not just an adventure for me and Ian before the baby came, but you know, so it was like our first adventure together. That's just so
2: nice. I'm like really touched by it. It was so beautiful. Okay. I was getting back to
1: the lovely drawing that you turned into your jewelry, your earrings. She likes to sometimes tell me that her first experience with underwater creatures was swimming with the humpback whales while inside mummy. That's how much we talk about snorkeling, diving, and animals with her. That she somehow embodied this idea she could remember swimming with the humpback whales. Okay, she's definitely a water baby. She could be more of a water baby, but we'll work you towards that. (laughs) Okay, I just, you've been a critical mom. Probably. Because <laughs> I really want her to love this, this underwater world. You think about it. How many people realize, because we're above ground all the time. Not many people, oh yeah, know there's fish and sharks and whales in the water. Mm-hmm. But how many people are really aware of the vastness that is the ocean? Unless you've been in there physically to see. You know it, but you don't understand.
2: Yeah. I'm going to ask you some questions that I ask all my guests. Yes. First question, what are your three top tips on the safe diving practice?
1: My top tips are very practical tips. First one, you have to listen to your dive master. You'd be surprised. I have been on so many dive trips where I could see the thought bubbles coming out of the dive master's head going, what is with this group of people? Because they're not following her instructions, he or she, I'm going by the sheep. <laughs> mm-hmm. where well, she has to work a lot harder to keep everyone together and make sure that they're not going below depth where you shouldn't be going. So the first thing is you have to really know where your dive master is. Follow them. Yeah. <laughs> don't go out. Yeah. And people, especially newer divers, didn't actually know, I, I, I retract that. Even experienced divers don't always listen to the dive master. But you're diving in a new environment or it's an environment that you will not be as familiar with as the dive master, right? So you have to listen to them. And that's one thing I have observed many people don't always do. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I, I do see that as well.
1: They, and including the uh, experienced dider. Even the experience, because they think they're so experienced that they don't follow the rules. They could be the worst offenders actually. The second thing is, do not buy a pokey stick. <laughs> What's your reason for that? Okay, my reason for that is I don't have a pokey stick. <laughs> <laughs> I purposely don't die with one though, but what do you call that stick? You get what I need, pointer. The pointer, yes. <laughs> you know why I call it the pokey stick? Because I have seen so many people just poke at things with it. <laughs> yeah. Unless you are using it with a purpose that is not destroying the coral. <laughs> Which is never the case. Don't bring it with you when you're diving.
2: Yeah. I think the uh, majority of people who actually carry some pointer, when they go down, there's no real purpose. Yes, exactly. But for the majority, there's no real purpose. And what they do is then they use that as a buoyancy compensator.
1: Which is softball dangerous. So that's my second. And then the third one I can tell you about because I have experienced it personally. You think you know everything. That's. You have a secondary (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you have to follow the rules and all those things. And then when you're down there, you check your gauge, you check your depth, you do your safety. All those you've been training. And even though you have long, however many dives, 50 or so, 100 or so dives, sometimes when there is an emergency or something does happen, your brain does blank out. Make sure you have a partner that knows what you're doing. So I say this because I'll tell you a story and be telling a lot of stories. But I have to tell this story because it is a safety story. Yeah. When I was diving in the Galapagos with Ian, we were diving at the arch, which has now since then collapsed. Mm -hmm. And that's where all the hammerheads are. And you can't even bring your boat close there. You have to take a little dinghy out Mm -hmm. to get close in order to dive there. And the dive master had growth in us that this is the Mickey Mouse die. It is a uh, negative poise types' because it's so easy. So you have to go in and drop down. It's a negative entrance. No earning your BC. Yes, that's it.
2: And once you get into the water, you just have to let yourself sink. Yes. Like a net.
1: Yes. Otherwise you'll lose the group. Yeah. And so I had worked myself up over this. This is my first kind of that type of diving. I've always dove in lovely calm waters, tropics where there's like coconut trees and clear blue water where you can see the bottom. You can't see the bottom here. It's open water, open like deep ocean. So I was already really scared. And so we went out there the first dive that I was out there and then I, did the entry, it was no fabrooks. And then I noticed that my regulator was malfunctioning. As it, it kept leaking bubbles in the stream of air, it's leaking mm-hmm. the air out. <laughs> and I was like, pointing on Eve, going, pointing to my regulator. I, I don't think he read the panic in my eyes very well. <laughs> but I was getting quite desperate. I kept poking at him and pointing to my regulator. And then he noticed me and he's like, waving me to come closer, give me a regulator. Basically, he took my regulator out. And at that point, my mind had blinked. He gave me his camera to hold on to while he tried to see if he could fix my regulators. So I'm, what, like 20, 30 meters underwater, moaning his camera, holding my breath because he took my regulator. <laughs> it did not even occur to me that I have a second he has a second, even though you have trained for it. In training, you have always practiced taking the secondary from your dice partner and mm-hmm. losing it to share, right? Yeah. <laughs> holding my breath, holding his camera. And then when I realized I couldn't hold my breath anymore, I let go his camera, <laughs> grabbed my regulator back from him, the one I was not functioning. <laughs> and then I was like, <gasps> and then Ian looked at me looked at his camera that slowly sinking and then he cheesed it and luckily he caught his camera in (laughs) time and then i was like going up and going up and then i ignored him and went up yeah i think it's
2: totally normal what happened to you that there would be a moment that we just blank
1: just my first time to encounter that so my tip is you will blank out. Like you can prepare for all emergencies and you have trained. We have trained When the dive instructor turns off your air, you, you do training like that in the yeah. pool, So then you know what it's like when you have no air. Yes, exactly. And then that's when you share your thing. And you even learn how to share the main regulator with your dive partner as you surface. Yeah. We've done all that. I know all that. <laughs> You At Did that you... moment in time, my brain had shut down. And then this was also a lesson to Ian as well. He, it's a lesson for experienced divers as well, that panic is hard to identify underwater. He had no idea how much I was panicking underwater. Like, you, you just can't read it underwater. So he thought I was fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he had no idea that I was in other state of terror and panic. <laughs> so... That's my tip.
2: (laughs) Okay. So, outside scuba diving, what do you do to maintain
1: your own well being? Outside scuba diving, I've not always been the best at practicing maintaining my own well being. I'm a person that gets stressed (laughs) quite easily. (laughs) But in terms of maintaining well being, and I would say just hanging out with friends, going on walks with friends, Mm. that's how I maintain my well being. Having a good, group of close friends. You don't need many. I always say it to Ian as well, when I'm looking for play dates for Kate, I just need that one friend for Kate and even that one friend for yourself Mm -hmm. that can ground you Mm -hmm. and be there for you. That's all you really need. Yeah. You don't need too many. You don't need a big social circle. You just need that one person to ground you. Actually, yeah, we we do that quite a lot. Okay. The next one. What advice (coughs) can you give to your 18 year old self? I like this question because I used to keep an online blog and I remember when I turned thirty quite a few years ago. <laughs> I wrote a letter to my younger self as a kind of a retrospective on life. <laughs> okay, and yeah, let's talk about that one. Yeah, no, I did. I wrote a letter to my younger self. I think it was my sixteen year old self, not quite eighteen yet, but I think it's the same. Two years not much difference, give, yeah, I know. Give and take. But like back then, when you're 16, 18, basically, when you're a bordering the teenager and adult, those years are years where everything, every decision you make and every experience you have just feels so much bigger than it really is. Mm-hmm. You blow it up in your mind. Mm-hmm, yeah. For example, I didn't know what university I wanted to go to. And for me, it was almost like a life and death decision <laughs> where I have to go to university, and if I don't get into the one I want to go to, I still have to find something. I cannot be left behind from my friends. Mm-hmm. But looking back now, just take the gap year. figure out what you want. Yeah. Same with what you study. At that point in time, when you're starting to think about university, it's almost as if you chose wrong, you're stuck with it the rest of your life. But when you think about it, a lot of people's careers are not even related to what they study in university. Oh that actually,
2: I wish somebody had told me back then. I think the education and the career progression in England is slightly different compared to other parts of the world. And I wish somebody had told me back then that I could go and study any other subject. I still could become a lawyer because there is that path
1: available and I could have gone and studied arts. I wanted to study history. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. You feel like these decisions were big and paramount to how your life will end up being. But when you look back now, decades later, you, you wonder why you made it such a big deal because it's not a big deal. You can always change paths in life. But at 18 years old, you think there is only one path you can go. All your friends are went to university. You have to go to university. You have to make the right choice in your career path and what you're studying. Yeah. And then also, in terms of what you experience relationship-wise, you don't want to lose your best friends. You don't want to lose your friends, even though those friendships might not be the best. But to you, breaking up with a friend is so tragic. <laughs> <laughs> and And the same with, like, boyfriends. Yeah. You don't want to break up with anyone or if you do, heartbreak is so, is so dramatic and you're so depressed yeah. and it's the end of the world. Yeah. Those things should not be what holds you back yeah, from true. doing things. But at that time, at that age, your brain maybe is not mature enough to process all that. My advice to my 18-year-old self is the decisions you make is not that dramatic or traumatic. <laughs> It's not dramatic, so pick yourself up. And it's not that traumatic because better things will be happening to you. Yeah. And just go out and do something. And if you're not with your peers, then so what? Because those peers that you make, those friendships that you make in high school and in university, they're not necessarily going to last you your entire life. All my closest friends right now are friends that I have made as an adult. Because as an adult, you treasure the friendship a lot more. <laughs> yeah, in a different death.
2: Yes. So, next question. What is one life-changing experience that you can think of now?
1: Aside from the most traumatic childbirth? <laughs> okay, no, that's such a typical mummy mommy experience, isn't it? <laughs> it's so cliche. Childbirth changed me. Yes, childbirth did change me, but I must say that One of the most life changing experience for me is at the bottom of Kilimanjaro. Not the bottom, but the bottom of the ascent, the last stage to the top of Kilimanjaro. And I was there one summer. It was my first major adventure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That actually, no, I don't know why at that time, but it felt Mm big because it was Kilimanjaro. Yeah, and I was one of the youngest. And fittest people in that group going up. Mm-hmm. For me, it was either a or die situation. And I remember sitting at the bottom of the last stage. And I was the last one left behind because everyone else apparently could acclimatize a lot better than I did. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't acclimatize at all. Oh, I was throwing up at 2,000 meters. What, huh? Yes. (laughs) I'm surprised. I'm so bad at high altitude, which I did not realize until it wasn't even base camp. It was below base camp and I was probably moving up. And so it was the bottom of the last stage. I was already left behind from the group and I remember feeling so absolutely dejected. And everyone had gone on, and they left one of the quarters behind to accompany me. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there thinking, I need to go do it. I need to do this. I cannot do it. I mean, all the way here to Kilimanjaro. How can I not go to the top of Kilimanjaro? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was one of the lowest moments I remember. Thinking, they came, they sitting there for so long, and this lovely guy <laughs> next to me was trying to encourage me. And I think the had asked him, he probably would have carried me up, okay. <laughs> but I didn't want that. You need to go on your own to feet. <laughs> and then I don't remember how long I sat there. I remember thinking it was the longest time ever. And then the guy turned to me and said, it's okay to not make it to the top. And at that point I was, I don't know. Lack of oxygen, it really resonated at that moment in time. And I was thinking, oh, you're right, actually. The experience itself I would make this journey and it's not as if I didn't climb Kilimanjaro <laughs> mm-hmm. I did climb Kilimanjaro throwing up every 10 meters <laughs> and I didn't make it to the last stage it's just the last little bit of elevation has totally done me in mm-hmm. and so I said okay you're right <laughs> I can't do it there is absolutely no way I can do make it up this mountain at all mm-hmm. then I turned back and went back to base camp And I was the only one not
2: to make it. (laughs) Okay, but you came back. What differences did you feel?
1: For me, the life-changing experience was because I was so young at that time and I feel like I have to achieve at something, at being adventurous, at doing these things that no one else has ever done. That you lose sight of the big picture. The big picture is not making it to the top of Kilimanjaro. The big picture is that you were willing to go on this adventure to Kilimanjaro and you try and you still experience the majestic mountain itself, the sea of clouds and everything, you still experience that. It's okay if you can't do that last bit because the big picture is you were willing to go on that adventure.
0: You have been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Hester Ross. One thing that really rings true to me from our chat is the big picture. Always take a step back, or more steps back, and look at the greater version of the picture in front of you. Her trip to Tonga and swim with humpback whale, while being six months pregnant, was originally intended as a baby kitten. However. Her narrative changes when she was floating in the water, resonating with humpback singing. It turns out to be the first big adventure of the family together. Her attempt to summit Mount Kilimanjaro became the life-changing experience. The takeaway was that when you focus so much on the end goal and become obsessed with not achieving that end goal you are actually depriving yourself from appreciating and enjoying what life is in the present moment Here's a little tip that you could try especially when you're dealing with any challenges What would you say in completing this sentence? I don't like the circumstance that I'm in right now However, if this difficulty did not happen I will not have. Surface Time is secretively produced by Noe Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And even better, share with your friends and family so that they get to be inspired. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith.com at servicetimechats.com time